iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming out to the Apple Store on 3rd Street Promenade tonight. We are here to speak with director of Terminator Salvation, McGee. Come on. There we go. That's what I needed to hear. Excellent. Moderating tonight, I've got Jeff Boucher. He writes for the LA Times and also Hero Complex blog. So I think I wouldn't remember that. All right, so let's everybody give a big round of applause for Jeff. Hello, Apple. Uh, it's nice to see you guys. Uh, I went on the set of Terminator Salvation last year, and it was the first time I met Mick G, and uh, it was something I'll never forget. He is a very high-energy person. Uh, he's right now, he's trying to stay contained within his mortal shell, but he won't once he gets up here after that coffee. I know it, so... Um, let me bring him up here, and so we can talk about one of the most exciting movies of the summer, Terminator Salvation. Hi. Hi. Uh, let me grab this so we can speak more freely. How's everybody doing? I appreciate you coming out. I can't wait to show the movie. I wish... Who's, hey, where's Mark Cohen? Is he over there somewhere? Mark Cohen's the guy from Warner Brothers, and everybody... I told him we should just show the movie. We should just surprise, sneak, show the movie. And he got all mad, and he freaked out like he always does, and um, it's a big rights issue, but I just can't wait to show it. How much, how much of the movie have you seen? I've seen the whole thing. I saw the whole thing, and uh, it is outstanding. Congratulations. I'm very pleased with the way it turned out, and uh, even in space where Star Trek is excellent, I don't know if you guys saw Star Trek yet. It feels very satisfying. Don't That's you feel like you're JJ. on the Enterprise right now? Indeed, there's a bridge component. In fact, I should look for Chekhov, who, of course, is uh, Kyle Reese in our picture as well. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about, you know, let's start at the beginning. You know, I remember talking to you about it. Uh, you were, like many people, not sure that we really needed another Terminator film. No, not at all. I thought it was a bad idea. I thought that the, the pictures had largely, the story was told after the second Terminator. And the third one was fine, and it was an interesting story, but it, it lost its way just a little bit. I think that reflects the sentiment of the fan base. And what we wanted to do was figure out a way to establish credibility. And I think to do that, we needed to begin again, because... The first picture, of course, is a present-day picture. We have a Terminator coming back in time. Second picture, same thing. It was a wonderful step up with Robert Patrick and liquid metal and everything. And third picture, arguably, same thing. Present-day picture, Terminators come back in time. This time, it's a girl. And I couldn't just make a fourth one where we said, all right, this time, it's a transvestite. <laughs> and uh, away we go. And I, we needed a new point of entry. And for that matter, we decided on the future war because we've only ever seen glimpses of the future war in the earlier pictures, and Cameron only ever gave us little snippets. So it seemed logical to say, let's tell the story of an adult John Connor in the future war of man versus the machines. You know, one of the fascinating things is uh, the influences you've had on this. And I remember talking to you about Cormac McCarthy and talking to you about uh, Philip K. Dick. Talk a little bit about, I mean, the special effects are important, uh, but also sort of the tonality of it. Yeah, just... Um, I, everybody who worked on the picture, from the crew to the actors, we, I gave them a copy of The Road by Cormac McCarthy just to get your head right as far as the desolation and the, the separation of the experience. But then also uh, does The Android Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the Philip K. Dick novel that became Blade Runner. And uh, a lot of references of contemporary films. I thought uh, Road Warrior was a yeah. good example. Children of Men was a good example as far as this incredible... A credible look at uh, a future gone a little bit haywire and I wanted to really get everybody in a place where we were taking the source material seriously and we were doing the best we could to do what I think Daniel Craig successfully did with James Bond and of course Chris Nolan and Christian did very very well with the Batman idea with Batman Begins and the Dark Knight so just want to get everybody's head right regarding what we needed to do to reestablish credibility in the telling of a Terminator story. So uh, you mentioned Christian Bale. Um, tell me about how integral he was to uh, not just the story, but actually getting the movie made. Do you guys like Christian? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's, that's the whole reason right there. You have a guy like Christian Bale, and you're trying to do something where you want people to look a second time. And I think by virtue of everybody hearing Christian Bale is going to be a part of Terminator, everybody takes a closer look and says, I trust Christian Bale. He doesn't traditionally make bad decisions. He usually associates himself with great stories and great films, and maybe there's a little bit more meat on the bone than I originally anticipated in a Terminator film. 
And we wanted to go a step further by hiring the great Stan Winston, who created the Terminator robots and has since deceased. And uh, he's, we've dedicated the picture to his memory. And then we did a lot of writing of the script with a guy named Jonah Nolan, who is Chris Nolan's brother and wrote Batman Begins and Prestige and The Dark Knight. So you get the fans like you have here starting to hear those were the people involved in the picture and they feel honored and they start to overcome the bummer of the Charlie's Angels guy touching Terminator, <laughs> which is only fair. And I accept that completely because I, I talk a lot about people have the privilege of looking at any artist's work in any capacity, in a musical capacity, in a writer capacity. Who out here is involved in the arts in any way whatsoever? So yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people. And you can be judged by what you do early on, even though that may have been what you had to do. We talked about whatever your first gig might have been as a writer, and you, know, you might be writing a food column even though your passion is film. Right. And people go, but you're the food guy. You're like, I, I just did what I had to do. All you have to say is bosom buddies. Fairly put. <laughs> so, Fairly put. Right? There you have it. I mean, and of course, I give the example of uh, Johnny Depp being in 21 Jump Street or the great Sean Penn being Spicoli before he could show that he was very serious. And Spicoli's great. What was wrong? Yeah, I was going to say, what's wrong with Spicoli? Nothing. I mean, but you get my idea that my body of work wouldn't suggest, oh, that's the right guy to mess around and follow Jim Cameron. And it's funny because the first thing I wanted to do was go down and talk to Jim Cameron about Terminator. So I went down, I saw him on Avatar, and I said, I really can't do this without, without you knowing about it and having your blessing. He said, I'm not going to give you my blessing. I don't know what you're going to do with the film, and I reserve the right to like it or not like it. I said, well, I reserve the right to like or not like Avatar. And we both sort of laughed and shook hands, and then he told me the story about how he felt following Ridley Scott after Alien, when people thought, who's this guy, James Cameron, and he's done Piranha too, and how, how can you fill the boots of Ridley Scott? And I think we're all very happy that he made that second Alien picture, Aliens, and it was pretty great, and he could honor the mythology and tell the story, and that's what we aim to do with Terminator. Yeah. Why don't you, uh, everybody knows Christian Bale, uh, some of the other cast members are going to be a little newer to... Uh, the, the average moviegoer. Why don't you run through and tell us a little bit about the cast member and a little bit about their character. Do you guys know about this guy Sam Worthington we put in the movie? Does anybody know about this guy yet? He's actually in Avatar. He's in Clash of the Titans right now. He just did a John Madden movie, but it's really exciting to, to sit up here and talk in front of people. You don't know who Sam Worthington is, and I feel like I'm talking about Russell Crowe before Gladiator, or you know, I guess LA Confidential, but you get my drift where the guy's so good in the movie, and he honors the movie to such a high degree, you're going to remember the day that you were down at the Apple Store in Santa Monica, and you heard the name Sam Worthington for the first time. And he effectively plays the co-lead opposite Christian and really does a good job with it. Yeah, and then uh, Moon. Talk a little bit about Moon. Yeah, I mean, I think James Cameron did a great job start, always making it clear that you've got to have strong female characters in a movie. And I think arguably the strongest female character ever is uh, Sarah Connor. Maybe Ripley in the Alien movies, but Sarah Connor maybe, says this young man right here. And, you know, you got to follow that with people who are credible to this universe. And there's a girl named Moon Bloodgood who just feels like she would survive. If something bad were to happen, uh, you know, in a nuclear event, she feels like she would be the last man standing, even though she's a woman. And then we hired Bryce Howard to play Kate Connor, who has a very regal sort of uh, Michelle Obama first lady quality. So she feels very organic to this universe also. And then Helena Bonham Carter, who is a big part of it also. And she brings a great deal of credibility in that respect. So yeah, that's Common, what Common's get. really good in the film too. Well, Common's sort of the secret, secret of the whole film because he he's, he's plays the right-hand man of John Connor. And he's sort of the toughest guy in the movie. Yeah. And the second movie, should there be a second movie, has a great deal to do with his character, the Barnes character. And uh, it's funny because the video game is actually the story of Blair, which is Moon's character, and Barnes, which is Common's character, and you see how they got to the point of the movie and where it begins. Wow, outstanding. Yeah. And uh, tell us a little more about the video game. I bet there's some people here that like video games. No, just the idea was I've been a part of really bad video games where uh, we, we tacked on a video game to the Charlie's Angels movie, and it was just sort of uh, an afterthought. And this time we wanted to be out in front of it enough where you could actually make a valuable video game where gamers who know what they're doing can say that's a quality video game that is worth playing. Right. And we were, we hired some, a great guy named Cause who is, uh, you know, he worked at Vin Diesel's company who was actually very proficient in the video game space and was behind uh, a bunch of stuff that they did over there. 
and a company out of Sweden named Grin, and we did everything we had to do to honor that community. So I think the quality of the game speaks for itself, and we wanted to make sure that every move we made had a patina of quality so people didn't feel like they were being ripped off. I see this guy with a, a Watchmen shirt on, and you know I see Zach all the time on at the Warner Brothers lot, and he's just a guy who really, as you know, puts quality first. Whether it's his art books or the making of the DVDs and just everything that goes into it, Zach is so all about the quality. And don't you feel respected by him as a fan that he is always thinking of doing it in an excellent way? Yeah, me too. So, and uh, just to let everybody know, we're going to take some questions pretty soon. Uh, so start thinking about it. And if you have something you want to ask. Uh, no, Should we watch the little four-minute thing? The, wanna, the, uh, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the thing let's, with the let's thing. Let's see what that is. And then we can talk about that. And we can see what it is. And if you don't like it, you can blame uh, Mark Cohen. Right over here, over there. Mark Cohen. And if you do like it, then we can talk about it. Let me get out of the way. and uh, burned it in the sun, which is never advisable. And a lot of takes actually got ruined because we went too far with damaging the film. And then we used three times as much silver to process the film as you would traditionally use. It's almost like what Ansel Adams would use for a black and white, large format print. But we did it in a color film capacity. And then we manipulated it even further over to a place called Company 3, which is right down there at, what is it, uh, Lincoln and Olympic. It's so funny because right now, down at Company 3, they're color correcting Transformers. They did Star Trek there. They did Wolverine. They did Terminator. And it's just uh, its funny that every movie we all are excited about seeing is about a half a mile from here. Maybe we should break in there and just leave them. <laughs> <laughs> We're technically challenged. So I think that uh, a Terminator movie has a responsibility to have forward-thinking visual effects, right? You gotta, when Robert Patrick's head comes apart in the second one, is one of the great moments in visual effects, to say the least. So you challenge yourself, what's our contribution to that? And what we wanted to do was create a synthetic character where you couldn't tell where the real character ends and the synthetic character begins. And we wanted the T-800 in this picture, and of course the T-800 is made famous by Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I wanted that body and that face and that look from the original picture from the early 80s. And he's a very fit man, our governor, but 25 years is 25 years. So we wanted to make sure that we captured exactly the way the T-800 looked from back then. And to do that, we had to go up to ILM. You guys all know Industrial Light and Magic up there in Northern California. And we had to write code by studying to a way, a degree that I could never articulate pictures from Schwarzenegger from that era as they created a digital character that I shouldn't be talking about it, but a lot of people know he shows up in the movie, is photorealistic. And that's our attempt to answer the call of what we need to do in a uh, visual effects capacity. How you doing? You know, I saw the, as I said, uh, I saw the film, and I would never give anything away. When did you see the film? I saw it, uh, like, last Thursday? Or... <laughs> and you didn't call me and freak out? It was on Hulu. I, I... Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dude, I, I sent you a text message. You didn't answer I didn't get it. No, I sent you a text. So let, let's talk it. to you. What are your I thoughts? Loved it. I loved it. I, thought it was really I mean, good. you're on the spot, but I'm... Well, I hated it. No, uh, no, I thought it was fantastic. What did you think of Sam Worthington? Sam Worthington holds the screen with Christian Bale. Well, that's why I hired this guy, because think about it. you got to have somebody play opposite Bale. Bale's a pretty physical guy. He's a very powerful screen presence. We've all seen his movies. So imagine that position where you have to hire someone to stand opposite him. Right. And there's even a shot, it's probably in this four-minute clip, Mark, you would know, uh, where the two guys come face to face. It's designed to feel almost like a heavyweight bout. And you need to have someone that stands up to bail and makes you feel like, I don't know who's going to win that fight. And it's very chic in Hollywood, as we all know, for the actors to be, you know, skinny and small. And who's in their late 20s or early 30s that can legitimately stand up to bail? It's a very short list. So I met this guy who's a bricklayer from Western Australia, who's just kind of a no bullshit kind of guy. And he's studied acting very extensively at a very famous school down in Australia where, you know, a great many people went. And he sort of had the nuance of an actor and the physicality that I needed to look for. 
and it was very clear from Jump Street that yeah. he was the guy to do it. And he's a, he has a very contained performance, too. There's a lot going on inside him Indeed. that comes across. Indeed. Which is uh, really, really very impressive for an actor of his... Uh, all right, and I think you know. I think the highest compliment I can pay Christian is the fact that think about his movies. Did you guys like Heath Ledger's performance in The Dark Knight? I mean, yeah. incredible. Okay, then you have Russell in 310 to Yuma, yeah. and Russell and Heath are always good. And then you have Johnny Depp in Public Enemies, and then you have this no-name Sam Worthington in this movie. And everybody's always good in a Christian Bale movie, which is the highest compliment you can pay Christian because he puts the movie first and he thinks about what's best for the overall movie experience. So uh, why don't we watch this and uh, we'll talk about it in a second. What day is it? What year? 2018. What happened here? Judgment day happened. Salvation. Rated PG-13. In theaters Thursday, May 21st. I'm very pleased with that. I can't even act like I'm not pleased with that. How about that? That's fantastic. Right. So, you see what's going on there, and you see uh, what Bale's up to, and we all believe in him. And let's, let's get back to uh, 
One what shall we get back one, to? One quick question. Um, this is the first one that's not rated R. Is that a disappointment to you, or is that just a... It's strange, because we didn't shoot the movie looking for a rating. We just shot the movie we wanted to shoot. And I've always maintained that from early on, if anybody was at Comic-Con over, you know, about a year ago, uh, we were there with this guy named Jeff Robinoff, who runs Warner Brothers. And if there's one guy in the world who would have something to say about you got to make it PG-13 or you got to make it R, it would be this guy who runs Warner Brothers. He said, go ahead and make it R. And he put his money where his mouth is because... They made the Matrix pictures, and I believe all three of them were ours. So we just shot the movie we wanted to shoot. And at the end of the day, we found that, okay, great, there might be a moment where an arm gets chopped off and blood squirts on somebody. And that was the moment that made it an R. Right. And that was just sort of gratuitous and had nothing to do with the story and didn't require a compromise to lift a shot like that out. And I loved in the first picture where you have Schwarzenegger operating on his own eye, and it's, it serviced the story. Right. We just didn't organically have any moments like that. You see Sam, half of his face on, half of his face off. We made the movie we wanted to make. We got a PG-13. We shrugged and we walked away. And I think that we are all familiar with, again, The Dark Knight yeah. being a compromise-free picture that got a PG-13 rating. So we just did what we wanted to do. We didn't aim for anything, and there was no compromise in that respect. Yeah, great. Well, uh, let's take some questions from the audience uh, back there. Yes. Yeah, but not, not to a degree that had the realistic patina that we ultimately wanted. Again, back to this place, Company 3, the leading place on the planet Earth for digital intermediate and doing what we wanted to do. A, I wanted to shoot the film on film, okay? Because I wanted that motion blur component, so I elected not to shoot digitally. I think it's Benjamin Button that's the first picture, Fincher's picture, that feels very, very cinematic that's shot digitally. So I wanted to shoot on film. We chose not to just hang green screens all the time and say, oh, we're going to fix it you know, by filling in the green screen. And we didn't have tennis balls as eye lines for the actors and saying, oh, that's a T-600 and just uh, emote, Christian. So we wanted to do everything as practically as possible. And treating the film as an analog element was critical to having what I think makes you feel the grit of the picture. And you don't just go, oh, that's all CG. I don't give a shit. You know what I mean? So that's what went into that. And we did extensive testing by, you know, we, Vipers and different uh, Genesis and a few things that we were going to look at. And then obviously we played with the uh, processing of it and just the manner in which we color corrected it. And nothing came close to what we did organically by damaging the film. And we went further by using old Panavision lenses, not the Primo lenses, but what's called ultra speeds that aren't corrected to the same degree that the Primos are. And it makes it uh, just have a look and a feel that makes you feel like what happened here. And of course, the what happened here is the bombs went off. So we elected to go that route. Yes. With hindsight, what turned out better? And what do you now that the film is finished, what do you wish you could change? Can you repeat uh, the question for the podcast? Yeah, in hindsight, what turned out better than I anticipated and what turned out less well? And what do I wish I could change? Uh, Sam's performance turned out better than I anticipated. I had no grounds to believe it would be as successful as it was. He stands up to Christian, which is a tall order. And Christian, you've seen be great. But Sam, I cast off a film called Somersault, so I had no reason to believe that he could, he could do it. And he did it. And then, for me, the CG components are the best part of the movie. And then there's always going to be two or three shots where you're with your visual effects supervisor. And ours is a guy named Charlie Gibson, who's one of the most talented guys in the world. He's won two Academy Awards one for a Pirates of the Caribbean movie and one for Babe. And, uh, but we still would scratch each other's heads and go, how do, we, how do we fix that and take it higher and add this bit of realism? And I'm hoping it's just because we're more maniacal about it than the audience is gonna be. But I am such a stickler for everything being real, which is why we built all the sets, built all the robots with Stan Winston, and then properly blew everything up. We all got our eyebrows burned off, feeling the heat, because we wanted it to feel real and engage the audience so you don't just go, that's a drawing, and I don't need to feel involved. So I think uh, those are the two elements. There goes my water. Yes, and the blue shirt, sir. Why did you get picked over a different director? I don't know. That's a, that's a good question, but it's, it's interesting. Are you a director? Yeah. All right. I, all I know is this is my manager down here, and uh, I've always been known as an enthusiastic guy. And I remember one time I went to Sony, right, and there was this movie called Blue Streak. It starred Martin Lawrence and uh, Luke Wilson. And this is Daniel, and he goes, oh, go down there and, and, and meet on Blue Streak and, and you know, tell him what you're going to do. 
And I go down there and I meet with Amy Pascal, who's the head of Sony, and I say, yeah, it's gonna be great. It's gonna be great, it's gonna be funny, it's gonna be action-packed, it's gonna be dynamite. It's gonna be really great. She goes, well, how would you make it funnier? And I wasn't prepared to answer the questions. And she said, how would you articulate the end of the first act? And what is the emotional pivot of the movie? And how is the destruction of the hero's plan intact at the end of the second act? And what do you suggest for, ask me all these tough questions that I wasn't prepared to do. And I got my ass kicked. I didn't get the movie. And I remember going back to your house and everybody else said, I go, I never again am gonna go into a meeting on a movie and not have my act together. I'm gonna go in, I'm gonna talk about the look of the movie, the characters, the story, the editing pattern, the manner in which the camera will move, everything you could ever imagine. I'm gonna cut fake trailers that suggest how the movie is gonna feel. I'm gonna be completely buttoned up in every way imaginable, and I will succeed or fail as a function of being very, very clear with what I wanna do. And I did that for Terminator. I came and I said, I want the world to feel real. We're gonna talk about the future war. We're gonna put story and character first and never be reliant upon noisy explosions and action for action's sake. And I said what needed to be said to inspire confidence in the people that were making the decision to ultimately get the job. So I had to learn the hard way one time, but it was strangely the best thing that ever happened to me because I vowed to never let that happen again. And, and didn't Amy give you uh, Charlie's Angels? She did, yeah, but she didn't want to. That was because <laughs> Drew sort of threw her arm around me and said, this guy does it or I don't do it. And uh, I was protected by but Drew. But didn't you, like, jump on the table and stuff? I acted out the whole movie. So you just, <laughs> you just, just right be prepared. Now? I'll tell you. <laughs> just be, the, the way to do it is to be prepared. If you go in for your first movie and somebody goes, well, why do you want to do it? Don't just go, because it'll be great, man. It's going to be dynamite. That's not going to get it done. You have to articulate exactly what you want to do and then live or die on your vision. Yes, ma'am. For me, I like to communicate very, very openly with the actors. I come from a place of partnering, and you know, not to sound ridiculous, but Ron Howard said being a director is hearing a great many voices and then synthesizing them into your vision. See, he's a fundamentally collaborative guy, and I like being collaborative, so I do read-throughs with the actors, I talk about the beginning, the middle, and the end, and indeed the arc. For example, Christian. You can't go in and get Christian to do a movie and say, hey man, you know, it's gonna be action-packed and dynamite. He wants to know, where is the character when he enters the picture? What is the conflict the character has to experience and in what way will you find resolution? And you have to talk about the arc. And this picture, for example, you meet John Connor and he's just a garden variety soldier. He's not the leader of the resistance. So you talk to Christian about the burden of knowing your destiny, even though nobody else does, which is always the, the thrust of a Connor in any Terminator picture, where you're trying to tell everybody what needs to be done and nobody wants to listen to you. And by the end of the picture, through following his own beliefs, he will be thrust into the leadership position of the resistance. And you map out exactly what that arc is. And in regard to rehearsals, I like to rehearse very, very lightly. I rehearse for a long time, but don't have the actors leave their best stuff in rehearsal. I can't tell you how many times you saw it done well in rehearsal, and you get out there during the day and you go, it was so much better in rehearsal. Just kind of get it where you have the actors in a place of comfort, and everybody understands what's going to be expected of them on the day, but leave yourself a place to elevate to on the day. I find if you leave everything in rehearsal, sometimes then the actors be, oh, I did it that way already, and you're like, yeah, that was rehearsal. They don't care, they can't capture that thing. So, that's my style. Yes, sir. Um, do you watch the Sarah Connor Chronicles? I do, and I'm buddies with those guys. I don't know like, how, how much you tied in with that, or is it... Not very much, not very much. And we talked about it very early on before I started shooting the picture, because I know from my experience in one-hour episodic television of, you know, Supernatural and Chuck, and when I was doing the OC, and, uh, you know, all those shows, you have to chase so many storylines on a one-hour basis, we would be foolish if we tried to synthesize what we were doing with what they were doing. So we elected just to follow the mythology of the first three films. So it was out of respect for those guys, but we would have been chasing our tails if we tried to get hung up on what they were doing in episode you know, 111 and episode 206. So we just said, that's that universe and this is this universe. Felt like the right thing to do. Yeah. Furthermore, more specifically, what was it like on set when he lost his temper on the DP? 
Well, the thing is, is that's my fault. That's completely my fault because I want, you see the movie's effectively a war movie. So I try to get everybody's head right. And I try to say, I need you to let me know that you're gonna die right now. I need to know that you mean it. And you get everybody riled up. And the film set is a very safe place. You wanna create a safe environment for people to do what they need to do. Succeed wildly, fail miserably, and then correct it and do what you gotta do. So if there's a moment that's taken out of context, it's bad for all of us. Because uh, I like Scarface. But I wouldn't want to deal with Al Pacino on the set going, I'm not putting my face in that pile full of cocaine. People think that I'm a drug addict. You're like, but you're Tony Montana. That's what you got to do. Uh, we live in a dangerous TMZ world. I'm not doing it. You don't want actors thinking twice. And think of James Cameron, Kate Winslet, nude scene in Titanic. Same thing. They're come, you know, it's beautifully articulated. There's this wonderful woman's body on the couch and DiCaprio's painting her. And there was a moment where she had to take the robe off and she was kind of, you know, I'm sure getting in position and the cameras were rolling and those outtakes are there. But you need to have confidence with your actor that that's never gonna get on YouTube, that's never gonna get out there in a way other than that which you intended. So I take that one really seriously and you gotta be careful never to compromise the confidence of your actor. And it's a bummer. And look at the Wolverine leak, and there's a great many examples, and we just live in that world. And as far as Christian, the simple truth is Christian's just a really good guy and a passionate guy, and I'd love to sit here and tell you some sauce and dish on it. There's nothing to tell. The guy's just really focused, and I think that the worst thing an actor could do is just show up and go, oh yeah, tell me what you want me to do, man. I'll say this and exit camera left, no sweat. And you go, well, where's the passion? You want people who are passionate, and just think about your own dinner table on a Sunday night. Sometimes people get fired up, and if you came in at a weird point and got out at a weird point, it would be taken out of context, and from the bottom of my heart, that's all that was. So he's just, he's just the guy you like, that you want working that diligently on being great. Yeah? How did you go about designing, like, in the first three movies, you only saw the Terminators that came back in time, but now you have a whole other armada of... Totally. It's so funny. It's perfect to talk about. You're talking about the design of the machines, okay? And I think it's so appropriate that we're talking about that in an Apple store, okay? Because think of the language of anything from the machine world. The first Mac I had was a 2CX. Maybe I had a classic before that, but I had a 2CX. Cost a fortune. It had very little memory. It had a bad video card. It, you know, you get my drift. And then as you progress, it gets leaner, faster, and now you got an airbook and you got terabytes sitting all over the place. And that's just the nature, or your car. What used to be a fantasy is now real. ABS brakes, GPS, the whole nine yards. And it was the same thing with Skynet. We only ever saw the T-800 from 2029 coming back to uh, 84. And in our film, 2018, Therefore, you're not there yet. It was this dark period where you hadn't figured out what Skynet was. So the point is, what was Skynet doing from a research and design capacity, like an auto manufacturer, like the military, like Apple, to get to that airbook, to get to the iPhone? You know, think of your first generation iPod. You're like, look at this antique, that's funny looking, compared to what we have today. And it was the same thing with that. So we thought, let's create machines that patrol the sky, control the roads, control the water, or, and, and machines that harvest people so we can take your stem cells and figure out how to grow flesh on a titanium chassis and get the T-800. So we started with all those rules. You surround yourself with talented people, namely Stan Winston, and you design all the different machines that preceded the T-800. And you know, we pay homage to the T-600 that you remember Kyle Reese in the first picture talking about. They were easy to spot, they're too big, they have rubber skin. And we saw those in the movie, and uh, you know it was just it was fun to play with that. And the T ones, and of course the Hunter Killers. Other than that, we created all new machines. And then we just wanted to have a Soviet tank, real battle-hardened patina, where you get that dusty, dirty world that was influenced by Star Wars. So that's what we went for. Yeah, and it really does look good. It looks like almost like the World War One biplanes compared to a stealth bomber that comes later. You know. Yeah, and again, that was the genesis of the airplane. You know, one was real, and it led to the development in rather short order of the other. And that was that. Yes, sir? Question as far as the writing of this script, like what part of the process did you come onto the movie? And, and once it was yours, 
how did you go about moving from writing to the choices you make as a director as far as you know the machines you're going to build and the scenes and all that? See, to me, I come from a place where it's the director's responsibility to look out for the script. I don't like directors that look at a script and shrug and go, I'll shoot the script. That would be a shooter. And that's not really a director, in my humble opinion. So the script I liked because it talked about the future war, and that felt like an interesting point of entry. But other than that, I immediately go to work and effectively do my own pass, and then go out to other writers. Some are stronger in a character capacity, some are stronger in a storytelling capacity, some are stronger in an action staging capacity. And you cherry pick what's best, and you filter it into your own aesthetic. So for me, I'm hands-on with the script every step of the way, and I just, like I would be with the production design or the costume design, or the editing, or anything. And all the filmmakers that I look up to are very, very aggressive in the management of the script. So I would control who the writers were that came in. I would sit with the writers and work the material until everybody's head was moving in a north-south direction saying, this is the movie we want to make. And again, we wanted to get the script to a place where you could just read it on a stage like this without any explosions, without any CG, and just be excited about what you were hearing from a storytelling perspective. So as far as the choices you make as a director, as far as maybe some of the production design stuff, do you do that at the same time that you're kind of coming with, up with ideas for the script? Or are you just completely working on the ideas for the script first? No, to me it's all one thing, which I stole from Pixar. Because Pixar has a very collaborative environment in that respect. And what I like to do is get a post-production, excuse me, a pre-production space going. Where you get everybody in there and you start in the morning, you start talking about the material. Well, this is what the production design is going to look like, this is what the costume design is going to look like, this is what we're going to build practically, this is what we're going to extend in a CG way, this is what we're going to do with this character, and all your department heads are there, so everybody's operating in a place of information, and it's ultimately being reflected in the script, along with hopefully a writer that can take it off to his or her own space and add a little magic that you hadn't anticipated. And that's always what you hope out of any department head. You hope that you have a firm vision for production design, but you want a production designer who can take it higher. You know, In that respect, it's like Prince, who's an accomplished musician on every instrument. But Prince will hire a bass player. He will hire a piano player. He will hire a drummer. Probably feeling in his own heart that he's a better bass player, piano player, drummer than the ones he hired. But occasionally, if they do a good job, he looks back and says, that's why you got the gig. You know, and you want that out of your department heads. I mean, I like to shoot my own movies, but you also want a DP that's going to surprise you with a better way of staging the shot in the Apple store looking out at the crowd. So you stay nimble, but you have your own vision, and you work with people you trust. And that goes for the script, first and foremost. Yeah? Did you have a second unit, or did you overlook every, every shot from day one to day one? I had a second unit, and the way we did it was Charlie Gibson, the guy who's the visual effects supervisor and also the second unit director was, you know, that he had the same role. Because second unit was largely visual effects driven. We also had a third unit that would just do smaller pickups and it's sort of called a splinter unit. And no director likes having a second unit. You want to shoot everything yourself, but from a place of budgetary reality and getting it done in a timely fashion, you have to empower other people to do it. So you find people that you trust and you put it in their hands and away they go. And I like to do it where I don't know, if a movie's 100 days to shoot, second unit's usually 60 days of that, and they're running concurrently with you, and I like to have them follow the sets that I've been to, so they're not establishing the look of any set. We've already established the look, and then they can pick up what's required to finish out the scene. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, since uh, Terminator, the first uh, three, uh, there are other like machines in pop culture, like uh, the Cylons and Battlestar Galactica, or... Oh, yeah. You know, Transformers. Was there any, like, you know, during the creation, was it like, well, I get to be better than or bigger than a Transformer or anything like that? Not really. I mean, I like the Transformer movies like the next guy, but our movie is designed to be very grounded and very tactile and just in the very near future. And we live in a world where what was once science fiction is now real. And that to me is what's fascinating about the film is that, you know, if you have a bad heart, they'll give you a new one. If you're depressed, no one's gonna ask you about your mom or your dad like the old days. They'll give you a pill to manipulate your serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And that went for the machine design of what we had. It was based on what Honda did with Asimo and what's really happening in a robotic capacity and the idea of Star Wars defense initiatives going just south and just wrong. So 
we never got hung up in the other guys. And plus, we had the benefit of the icon of the Terminators and the skull idea and everything that goes with it, which I think is the coolest robot design ever. It affected me so deeply as a kid with the first one. Liquid Metal and the second one made me want to be a director, and there you have it. So we just tried to stay to our own thing. Jeff? What, uh, tell us a little bit about what this movie means to you in your career. I mean, I, uh, you know, you've gone through a lot. You've had uh, success. You've had uh, great success on television. Uh, you really want to be a director. Uh, tell us how this movie sets you up for that. Well, I mean, to me, the, the, the most important thing in my creative life is being an a accomplished director. And i got a long way to go. You know, I look at it like every movie is an opportunity to improve as a storyteller, to improve the manner in which I parcel out information and continue to grow. And I made the Charlie's Angels movies because people said you can't make a successful female action movie. And I like the challenge of that. I said, oh yeah, you can. I think we can do that. And then I did a movie called We Are Marshall because I was so afraid of flying for so long and it was about a plane crash. So that was my own Joseph Campbell moment of going into the cave to face what I was afraid of, to come out the other side experiencing growth. Very personal movie. And now you have a movie like Terminator that uh, you follow a, an icon like James Cameron and it's a big challenge in that you don't want to let down the passion of the fan base. So I'm hoping to emerge out of the other side, surprising a few people and keeping people off balance and guessing regarding who I am as a filmmaker, which is why I'm also developing Spring Awakening, Great. which is a Broadway musical that uh, it's basically a, a tragedy. There's three characters in the movie and two of them die. And it's a big change of pace, and I want to keep people off balance and guessing, and that's something that I know Christian's very passionate about as an actor, and I'm very passionate about as a director, so hopefully this film will be a step in the right direction, and I'm very pleased with uh, letting the film do the talking and getting away from being a cheerleader. And do you have, uh, you have to get detailed, but do you have a sense of a trilogy in your mind for this? Absolutely. Um, we started this film with three pictures in mind. There's no doubt about it, but it's in the hands of the fans to see if there's gonna be a second or a third picture. I would never be so bold as to presume a second picture. There's a lot of movies that go out and go, oh, and the next one, and the one after that, and then the, the demand is not there. So it's in the hands of the people to see if you wanna know where Skynet goes, where John Connor goes, the genesis of the Marcus character, what becomes of Kyle Reese. As the story continues, we're ready to parcel that out, but it's not my call. It's the call of the fans. It's quite the challenge that Christian has to, uh, to be Batman and Terminator. I mean, these are two huge franchises that are well underway. I'm not sure anybody's been the lead in two franchises of that size. Ever. I know, but I, I would always challenge him with Han Solo and Indiana Jones. Oh, that's a good point. So I said, if he can do it, man, you know, and he likes a challenge, and as he says, he's bloody-minded. So anytime anybody says, hey, don't do it, or you can't do it, that attracts him. And I think that, that to the people who are going forward in a film capacity or writing, directorial, television, whatever it may be, you have to be unafraid of daunting tasks. And you know you're gonna get kicked in the shins a lot along the way, and you just gotta keep on trucking. And you gotta do your thing, and you can't let the system beat you, you know? And in that respect, I saw Star Trek just the other night. It's the Kirk shape, which is pretty great. Oh, it's fabulous. So uh, that's that. Yeah. Any more, uh, anybody have a question out there? Yes, ma'am. What do you do in Act 1 that sets up the hero's transformation What do I do in Act 1 that sets up the hero's transforma transformation in Act 3? Well, the hero largely in this picture is the Sam Worthington character. And what we do is we illustrate that he's given up on himself. And he's given up on humanity. And then through an extraordinary set of circumstance, he ends up in a new world, almost like Alice in Alice in Wonderland. He's walking around, he doesn't know if he's alive or dead. And through the courage of a young boy, through the generosity of an elderly woman, and through love for the first time in a female character, he's gonna reestablish faith in himself and faith in all of humanity. So the first act is establishing, I've given up on myself. We meet him on death row. And you, you start in a character position of, just chop me up till there's nothing left. I, I've never seen anything nice in humanity. I've never seen anything good in myself. I've completely given up. So that's the first act shape. And that gives you a heck of an arc to arc out to a guy who fundamentally discovers, hey, I should believe in myself, and I, there are a few good things about humanity. And is that done through dialogue or through I like to do it through dialogue, but also through non-expository means. You see a physical change. You see the hardness of the character moving in this way, and then you see him becoming more receptive to other human beings. And it's something that we, we garnered from studying veterans returning back from war as they reacclimate to uh, 
our contemporary culture of Third Street Promenade, and for that matter, prisoners, because at the top of the picture, he's indeed a prisoner. And the irony of this picture, of course, is the regular world that we're all a part of right now never showed him anything kind. And then when he wakes up in a world of duress, a world after a nuclear holocaust, he strangely finds everything that's right with humanity. So we thought that was exciting. Yeah. How is it working with like the development executives and the, the student group and all the other people who try to have input into the script? Yeah. Yeah. It was awesome, right? Um, the question was, how is it working with the development executives and everybody who has input in the script? And you know, it's just it's it's something that needs to be managed. You need to do a good job of listening, cherry pick the good ideas, and then succinctly and clearly drill down and hold your ground when there's things that you're passionate about that you can't give up on. And you're much wa more wise to interface with these people who are gonna have a lot to do with the success or failure of your film than you are just to be an asshole and stomp your feet and drill down and say, I don't care. You should listen, not to mention, good ideas can come from anywhere. I'm not hung up on anybody's title. I'll go to the craft service guy and if the craft service guy has a good idea regarding the way a scene should play out, I'm all ears. And if it comes from a studio executive, even if I'm not getting along with that studio executive, a good idea is a good idea. And considering everything being Star Trek tonight, it's the way of Spock. Spock would never say, I don't like you, therefore I'm not gonna acknowledge your logic. He would have to acquiesce, I don't like you, but it is logical and I will therefore do it that way. <laughs> what else? Jeff, what about you, man? You're an exciting writer. You, what's your famous quote? You couldn't be a superhero, so you write about him. Uh, you know, the, the blog, they, they put that quote on there. I didn't actually say it. But I'm a fan of it, so I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks. What's, who's your favorite superhero character? Oh, I guess uh, through uh, Batman. I guess Batman. You have to go with Batman. Uh, I write this blog about uh, comic books and superhero movies, and science fiction and fantasy, and uh, a, lot of uh, a lot of coverage on Terminator right now, if you go there. And then this Sunday, if you pick up the Los Angeles Times, uh, the, I don't think you know this, but it's the Sunday calendar cover. The Sunday is your face. Seriously? Yeah, you made the cover. I got a face for radio, so I apologize preemptively. <laughs> Our circulation isn't doing that well either. So. Oh, shit. Uh, yes, sir. Do you think there'll ever be a time where just an ordinary person is able to together a movie make it look like a $100 million We're there. It's the most, look, again, what a wonderful time to be in the Apple store. Do you understand? People are cutting $100 million movies on technology that you can get right here in this store right now. That is a spectacular opportunity. And in that respect, we're all out of excuses. And I promise you, there's six, six media companies? Not that many, okay? Five or six, you know, okay, six. I promise you, the guys and girls that run those, guys and girls, the people who run those studios, they're not going to be hung up and say, oh, you cut that on a, 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 a G4 tower, it doesn't look right. You used it, uh, a Macintosh technology and you shot it on a red camera. I would like your film, but it doesn't look sexy enough. No way. If you have a good idea, you can go out and get that camera and cut it on your Mac right now, mix the sound in Pro Tools or even a lesser, more affordable program and cut it on any of the Mac editorial programs and just go down to a bench on the Third Street Promenade, grab a male actor, grab a female actor, and it's the scene where she breaks his heart and she says, I don't love you anymore. And you're Woody Allen. And I'm not kidding. And if it's well done, Amy Pascal, who runs Sony, says, get your ass in here and let's make a movie because you made me cry with that scene you shot down at the Third Street Promenade. That's all that matters. The days of the 80s of, ooh, look at the big thing. No one cares. I almost feel as though people feel manipulated by loud, obnoxious crap for crap's sake. They want quality. Always quality. Well, what I was getting at, uh, person couldn't shoot a movie like Terminator You could to a larger degree. I mean, the movie didn't work commercially all that well, but if you look at Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, and it's a guy who did everything on his Mac. He's went for it. He's did it. So, and yeah, every day it's getting more, right? but yeah, it's just all storytelling. So, you're right, it's a little tough if you want to blow up the world and have super CG, but not as tough as you think, because there's even CG programs where you can get <coughs> a lot done. Is that the actual name of the program? Is that my inner voice? <laughs> uh, yes, sir. Do you want to shoot any movies in 3D? 
I, I had considered shooting the movie in 3D. I think it's very exciting. But this film, I wanted it to feel decidedly human and grounded. And I didn't want to get caught up in trickery. I wanted the film to be story first. And I love 3D. And I went down to Avatar, where Cameron is reinventing the wheel, as he always does. And the 3D with that is going to blow your mind. And I look forward to making a movie in 3D. It just wasn't this one for me. I thought it would be more distracting than contributing to the story. You know, I wanted to ask you. Yeah, but there's two ways to go about 3D. You can shoot the 3D on the day practically and shoot the characters with stereo cameras so you capture the image and the depth that's required to replicate the left and right eye in the field of view, which is what gives us depth every day. Or in post-production, you can create the 3D by going through every frame and creating the separation. And that sounds like a cop-out. That's an interesting look also. So everybody's still playing with that right now. There's a guy named Jeffrey Katzenberg at DreamWorks who's the most passionate advocate of 3D. And uh, yeah, you're going to see more and more 3D pictures. Yeah, I think especially with uh, Hollywood trying to get people to stay going to the theater. I mean, uh, anything that can make the theater experience different than watching Wolverine on your laptop. Right, but let's talk to the audience about that. I think you make a good point. Okay, we all love music and uh, you know we've seen the decline. And we all love iTunes, but you've seen the recorded music industry changed, to say the least, and essentially the death of the record store. Do you guys think that movies are safe because of the fundamental communal experience? Or do you think music, or excuse me, movies are ultimately gonna go the way of the record store and vanish? Who thinks movies and the movie-going experience is gonna stick around? Oh, good. And who thinks that it's likely just gonna go away because we all have big screens hanging on our wall and you don't need to be a millionaire anymore to have 5.1 and a kick-ass subwoofer? Anyone? So you kind of think that. Why do you think that? Yeah. Movies are different. Yeah, but the communal thing, because you're right. When I was a kid, I'm older than you. When I was a kid, you know, TVs were this big. They had two-inch speakers, and there were three channels. And now, like I said, you don't need to be that rich to have a really good, big you know, rear view projection or a great plasma or LCD. And then you can certainly get a four or $500 receiver that'll decode in great Dolby or DTS. And then you'll have wonderful surround with the center channel left, right, and rears and a subwoofer. And you don't need to be a gazillionaire to pull that off. And it can replicate and in a great many ways supersede the technical quality of the theater experience. But there's a theater component of the fun of all of us going to the theater and you wait in line and it's Star Trek or whatever it may be. But how and much of that is generational loyalty? I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm, ask, like, I'm I mean, asking. I, I, could, I can never get by without newspapers and magazines. And I, I couldn't agree I more. I don't know anyone under 20 that reads newspapers. Well, we've talked about that at great length. Physically. I don't look forward to, I love the internet like everybody loves the internet, but I don't look forward to the death of the newspaper or the periodical. I like that tactile experience and I damn well like that my face is on the cover of the calendar section this Sunday. That's bullshit. And I know I'm going to have like six chins and like a half blink. That's why I hide behind the camera. Thank you, Mom and Dad, for giving me that double chin. Uh, yeah, yes. I, I like method actors, but sometimes it can be more distracting than ultimately a help. You know what I mean? Sometimes you need to be nimble because there's always that which is intended, and then there's that which is needed. And you don't want to get hung up on, my method suggests that this is exactly what I was going to do in regard to my performance. I like it a little bit more fluid than that, and I think it's to the benefit. Uh, it, it depends. It depends on the, and the individual, and that's all concluded very early in the interview process. Talking about process with the actor, talking about expectation, and if I were to undertake Shakespeare or something of that nature, it would probably change my approach to the acting and the onset cadence of the whole rhythm of the set. You follow what I'm saying? So people would stay in character and become much more method in every expression. He's his own brand of method. I mean, he definitely does a great deal of prep and research. He's doing a film called The Fighter right now. And I'll bet you Bale becomes like De Niro did for Raging Bull. I'll bet you 
the trainer. He's training a little bit with Freddie Roach, the guy who trains Pacquiao. He's training over in Boston. It's a story. He's doing it with Wahlberg. It's two brothers, and they're boxers, and it's a bit tragic and what have you. And I know Christian will train to a degree where the trainer would say, you could fight for real. He's just that focused. Look at what he did for The Machinist, where he almost died. Unbelievable. Look what he did for American Psycho. Look what he's willing to do. I mean, the guy will do what it takes to use his instrument and get it there. And it's interesting because he's so in command of his voice, of his body, of everything that goes into the choices he makes. He will decide where he's going to blink in a scene. He will decide where he's breathing in the scene. He will, he, he will make those decisions. And it's just wonderful to work with someone who's that in control. It's amazing the different things that actors do. You know, Michael Gambon was raised by parents who... Uh, we're deaf, so he learned sign language before he learned how to speak. So he goes through the script and he memorizes what his character is thinking first, and then he learns the role from the inside out. So he, first he memorizes all the thoughts and then the lines. So he does the performance from the inside out. I mean, it's fascinating when actors say things that's, like that. Yeah, that that is particularly fascinating. I mean, that's pretty Honestly, nutty. Yeah, that's yeah, but it's pretty. I mean, great. No, not nutty bad. But I mean, it's like, it's great because you really you don't want to just say the words and go. Why did I say that? Right. You want to know what goes into it, and that's what I was talking about with this lady over here regarding the non-expository, which of course means not speaking, means of storytelling. Yeah. And you would have to have an understanding of what the character is experiencing. And I think Terminator, ironically, is one of the ultimate examples of one of the great performances in history with a very, very few words in Robert Patrick in T2. Absolutely. He essentially doesn't speak in the movie. I mean, a handful of words is one of the great performances of all time. Yeah. So yeah. an example of truly understanding what the character is going through and not always relying on being a chatty Cathy to yeah. get it done. Very well said. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, question: You're talking about instruments. I'm wondering, uh, wondering about your instrument. So, you say it takes about 100 days to shoot this movie. I'm well, I shot this movie in 77 days. 77. So, how do you pace yourself? Because I know it takes a lot of stamina to concentrate for that long period, and then the post-production and the pre-production. Uh, it just depends on the size of the movie and what's required. And you go through with your uh, assistant director staff. Excuse me. And you talk about what you can and can't do in any given day. And you know, you just you'd be amazed how you start to deconstruct it and it illuminates the plan. And you say, all right, of the 77 days, 30 of them are daylight exterior. You look at the almanac. The sun comes up at this time on this day and it sets at this time. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is how many setups we can get in any given day. And you just start to break it down. Then you go, these are on sets. This is in the water tank. And this is on location X. And you just figure it out until you have a plan. And then I'll, you always have to make adjustments but just through being honest about that scene I was talking about with this gentleman regarding the wife or the girl leaves the boy. You know, one could argue you should be able to get that in a day. You know, that you shouldn't need three days to get that done unless you're doing something, unless the earthquake strikes when she's telling him. So you just start to plan it out. You have an honest conversation with the people you trust. You bring in the director of photography. You bring in everybody involved and you get it done. And then for you, your, your own physicality, like do you have enough time to rest? How, how much sleep are you getting? Are you getting to exercise during that time? Because it's hard to keep concentration for, I don't know, a year or a year and a half at a time. Yeah, but that's the job. I mean, it, that either gets you excited or turns you off. And I forget the good advice of comfortable shoes. You know, some, I was like, ooh, what's your directives? Like, comfortable shoes. That's great. You know, and uh, it's, it's, you're right. I mean, it'll take years off your life. I'm 12, and I look like this. <laughs> and, you know, it, it will. But it's tough, and it's brutal, and you have to protect getting enough sleep, but you doggone well better learn how to operate in a sleep-deprived capacity. Yes, ma'am. So how does that come into play when you're deciding ramping that actor up to that one scene or those couple of scenes throughout the shoot that you need to get them to? Yeah, that is a great question because I hate shooting out of sequence. It's a drag. And that's how you get pickled by the physical production people that go, oh, here's the schedule that makes the most sense. And you look at it and you realize the third act climax is day one. You're like, what is this shit? And you, you, you have to blow back and, and fight for, you know, I need to get the actor ready and ramp them up to do this, that, the other. And that's where rehearsal is perfect. Because you get everybody to understand your example exactly of 
you get them to understand what the rhythms of the scene are and is. And then you can, at a higher level of efficiency and effectiveness, shoot out a sequence. Because everybody's like, oh yeah, I know what that scene is and I understand that I go into the scene here and I come out of the scene there. And there's less exposure to getting it wrong. But it is a fundamental bummer for me to this day when you have to shoot so wildly out of sequence and you're trying to commute with actor, communicate with the actors, it's, it's very, very difficult and less than desirable and you have to do it all the time. I mean, if there's a scene that takes place on a stage at an Apple store and you go there in the first act, the second act, and the third act. And each time you go there, the character's in a wildly different place. I promise you, the person doing the scheduling naturally puts all of that material to get done together. You know, and you're like, I don't want to shoot the third part of that because they haven't experienced the, the disfiguring burn. So I don't want to jump my actor to that point, but you have to because it's just, it's never going to make sense to have the three days required at the Apple store and go, all right, we're going to go for two, then we're going to go shoot another month of the movie, then we're going to come back for that one more day. It's not realistic. It's not a realistic expectation, even though it'd be much better to do it that way. So you have to really watch that. That's an excellent, excellent point. And it's maddening because you want to just, if you could, and I'm sure, I forget the examples of direct, so some directors go, I'm shooting in chronological, I'm just not doing it any other way. But, um, I rarely find that supported financially. It's just too tough. Yes, sir. Okay, so we're hanging out in an Apple store. I think we all have a love affair with technology to a certain degree. Yeah. How does humanity avoid the dystopian future of Terminator? I don't know that we can. It's so funny because we, we did a great deal of reading of uh, the letters between Freud and Einstein, talking about the nature of man and uh, Freud talking about man is destined to destroy himself. Right. And Einstein saying, oh, no, 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 no we have a shot and ultimately Einstein acquiesced and said, yeah, Freud, you're right. Um, never mind those guys. But uh, he, here's the thing. We live in a very dangerous world. There's no doubt about it. We're familiar with how delicate the world is in an environmental capacity. There's a wild guy up in North Korea. There's an Arab-Israeli conflict that's a very serious problem. The White House can be pretty wacky on great occasion. So. I think that's what propels the story. Let me be, answer that first and foremost. That which makes us great is prospectively our undoing. And that's why I like, I like that on a character level, Raging Bull, he's got this desire. That's why he's great. That's why he eats himself. Tony Montana, Scarface, you know, one day Chico, one day Chico. That's why, you know, he's got this drive and then he can't handle it. And the same thing with society. We've got such a, a desire to go further and split the atom and create this great new energy source that's also the genesis of the nuclear bomb. And we just need to be very, very careful or we can blow it. And if we make one mistake in a nuclear age, we will destroy nations. There will be no learning curve like the wars of yesteryear. So it's a very, very serious thing. And as we live in a world where, you know, your paper's published, things about uh, the Prius, wonderful Prius, that we all like and support completely, accelerating on its own, turning itself off on its own, and doing strange things that we're not ultimately in control of. Do you so, have that argument with your friends about AI? Do you, do you well, look, I mean, do you have a Blackberry in your pocket? iPhone. Okay, you got an iPhone, and you know, think of, think of the applications that automatically correct spelling and do things that you didn't ask them to do. It's artificial intelligence that we live with every single day. And it's definitely in the service of us, but we can't let the genie out of the bottle. And the simple thought that James Cameron put forward is if you programmed a machine to perpetuate itself and one day it concluded that you are an impediment to its progress, it will terminate you. And it had a great deal of resonance. And we'll see. I certainly hope that day never comes, but I don't know. Think of Star Wars and think of the nature of our computerized missile systems and how automated that all is. It is automated. There's not guys, you know, cranking gears and trying to aim with, you know, old, uh, you know, pulleys. It's all indeed very automated and it's a binary world of ones and zeros and we've seen viruses cause a great deal of damage. Not Mac, more of a PC problem, <laughs> that uh, virus world. You know, an optimist would say that uh, the entertainments that have become so popular, things like Terminator and Battlestar and, and Philip K. Dick, I mean, that, that that is us warning ourselves. It is yeah. us warning ourselves and hopefully properly diffusing and staying aware. Because there's, 
I mean, speaking of Freud, Freud talked about an instinct called Thanatos, the death instinct, and it's alive in humanity. Well, his argument, all right? And there's a need for that to be expressed. And if you can express it through the arts and do it in a, in a way that's cathartic, then it never manifests itself in the destruction of the world. And hopefully, to some degree, that's the case. But just obviously, we can't solve this conversation here tonight. There's a whole lot of philosophy classes at UCLA talking about this right now. But I think that's exactly why people are so interested, because we could talk about it. And that speaks to the nature of movies in this genre. I think movies in this genre that are successful. What's your favorite movie in this world? I'll start. Mine's arguably The Matrix. First Matrix, okay? First Matrix, we can all watch as it plays in two hours and go, oh, that was awesome, man. Uh, bullet time, it's all this. And then we can go and talk about it for four years as we talk about the theological implications of what was suggested. And to me, that's a successful science fiction picture. It's working on one level where it's a whole lot of fun to watch, and then it's also working on a level where you could talk about it for four years worth of graduate work. Hey, you want me to wrap it up? <laughs> We're getting the uh, All right, so it, say hello to everybody. Very good. Um, so, Jeff, yes. thank you for uh, hosting this. Um, uh, no, no bullshit. I'm a huge fan of Apple and everything, and I, I, I wish the entire Apple community... Thank you, everybody in the orange shirts. Appreciate it very much. Everybody likes the Apple store. You know what's funny? You know what's also interesting? I remember one time... I went to talk to the big three automakers. I went to talk to the big three automakers. This is a couple years back. And I go to Detroit, and I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I saw the attitude and the way it was, and everybody was kind of down and bummed out. And I had just come from one of the early Apple stores. And the whole time I was in Detroit, I was thinking, man, you guys got to go see the vibe in an Apple store. People are happy. They li it's actually like that old... Apple commercial, where there's somebody standing back there and he goes, which one do you think they like better, the, the Apple or the PC? Well, it's not really a fair question. People, people enjoy working on it. It's not work, you know? And it's just wonderful to see people following their love in a work capacity. And if you follow your love, I suppose you're never really working. Right. And, uh, but computers, be it film, be it whatever, it's, uh, it's a hell of a thing to do. My parents still are wondering when I'm going to get a real job. They think well, I videotape bar mitzvahs. I'm like, I, I... I think your real job starts May 21st uh, with Terminator Salvation. I hope so. I look forward to seeing all of you there, and I can't thank you enough for coming out. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you to the Apple Store. And thank you to that guy on the bench I see on 3rd Street every time. <laughs>